Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers. And do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. From Capitol Hill to the White House, the Courthouse to the State House, the FTC to the State Attorney General. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business foreign and domestic. And have your questions answered by our group of legal experts. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly. Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. Um, broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in sunny Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. we got a great show for you today. We're continuing a Miami Book Fair series, and we're thrilled to have with us um, award-winning and best-selling author Michael Beschloss, whose new book is Presidents of War, the epic story from 1807 to modern times. And he will be appearing at the Miami Book Fair on the 18th. Um, definitely, if you're in town, please be sure to see it. He's also appearing tonight in Houston. Um, and uh, the details of that are he is at the um, World Affairs Council of Great Houston Junior League tonight. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bennett. So your, your new book um, is uh, A Labor of Love. Take, it's taken 11 years um, to um, from start to finish. And I guess um, jumping back to what had been 2007, what led you to, to take on this project? Well, I think that we Americans have gotten involved into too many wars, and that's because presidents took us there, and I wanted to figure out why. Uh, 2007, obviously, we're at war, but we, we are still today, which I never expected. And the idea is, goes through 200 years, James Madison all the way up to the present, and the idea is, uh, do these presidents, who have only about eight or nine of them who've taken us into major wars, do they have anything in common? What was the experience like? And I found that, for instance, they all got more religious under the trauma. They all were married to strong women who had a large part in this. All of them had empathy. They were very tied to the soldiers. And the other thing is that, you know, there's no experience in American life like the sad experience of a president taking us into war. It's the most serious thing that a president could do. And you wrote, you, as you you said you started this in 2007, and the, you know we were currently at war. And you know, of the presidents you go through, Lincoln, uh, beginning with um, Monroe all the way to excuse me, Madison all the way to um, Johnson. Um, 
you stop at Johnson, and and there's there are some limitations for why you couldn't do, for example, you know either Father Poppy Bush or um, W Bush, just because of the limitations on what's available. Uh, well, if you're going to write about a president, the history is I think you need probably thirty or forty years because you need that much time to see these people in hindsight, understand what was important, what was not. And the other thing is just getting documents. You know, uh, one way you write history is to get national security documents that people didn't have before, interviews with members of a president's entourage where they tell you things that they might not have in real time, and that usually takes decades. So you can write a book about George W. Bush or George H.W. Bush and the wars that they waged, but it's not going to be quite history yet. And I, I seem to remember something about when George W. Bush came into office by him delaying release of the official records of both his father's administration and his own. Uh, that's true. And so there are always variations in how soon these documents come open. Uh, and, and that's a very good example of that. Now, um, you, your book is about you know presidents and war, but the, interestingly, the, the first chapter is about a president who avoided war, Jefferson. That's right, Thomas Jefferson, who I think we should know more about what he did. And I, I tell the story of this, this, at least until now, very little known episode called the Chesapeake and the Leopard. And what this was, was 1807, Chesapeake was an American ship, the Leopard was a British ship, British ship fired on ours, and the Chesapeake surrendered. And this was a time, as you know, Americans and the British, although we had won the revolution, there was still a lot of hostility between the two countries. And so as a result, there was a big furor over the fact that the British had made our ship surrender. And Americans were demanding war, and it went to the President of the United States, who was Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson later said, if I had wanted to go to war, and if I'd wanted to be popular, and if I wanted to get all the benefits that a president can get politically from a war, all I would have had to do was open my hand because Americans were demanding war. And as it turned out, Jefferson said no, because he said, the founders of our country, the Constitution basically suggests that we should only get involved in wars when they are absolutely necessary for our national security, and he felt that it wasn't. And so the result was that you had something that we too rarely see in American history, a president standing up to a public demand and, and essentially say, I'm not going to have it. And, and so as a result, we didn't have a war of 1807, and we could have. And the two important points there, one being the, the constitutional structure, that the, the framers thought about this, and they purposefully put the power of war with Congress. Yeah, they sure did. And the reason they did that was because, as you know, when the founders were writing our Constitution, what they really wanted to do was make our country <clears throat> almost the opposite of Great Britain. They wanted to make sure, for instance, that we were not like the countries in Europe with kings and dictators who, when the king got unpopular, he would sometimes fabricate a reason for an unnecessary war. Everyone would fight, the country would unite, everyone loves the king in wartime, and the result is a lot of people were killed for nothing. And so what the founders did in Philadelphia was they wrote the Constitution so that the person who declares war in our country is not the President of the United States, but Congress. That's the reason why they did that. 
and from the very beginning unfortunately it has moved in the other direction and nowadays uh, in our own times presidents can declare war themselves almost single-handedly and almost do it overnight and I think it's a real danger and you quote Jefferson in a letter to a friend I believe and he says I think one war enough for the life of one man and you and I have gone through one which at least may less our impatience to embark on another and and but sadly that has not been the case it seems like we've right. had I, a war I, I love every that generation quote. yeah yeah he was talking about the revolutionary war and they knew how bloody it was and instead you know as you say you look through in american history and we've gotten involved in wars just about every single generation and i think there's a real problem here and in, and in the last generation we've had two yep no less. Uh, and we are now engaged in the war of Afghanistan, and you can argue that round or flat. That has been 17 years. That is what? Four times the length of American involvement in World War II, maybe more, uh, by far the longest war in American history, and not close to being over. Now, you... you... You open the book, the opening pages are deal with Madison and his flight from Washington and him looking back at the city burning. And uh, I think you're trying to imbue really the, the damage that can be done to a country through war. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I love the scene that you're kind of mentioned it at the beginning of the book, which is that it's August of 1814, and Washington is burning. The Brits in the War of 1812, they've invaded Washington. They're burning down the Capitol. They're burning down the White House. And our president, James Madison, is basically a fugitive. He's on the run because... He knows that these British soldiers want to kill him and hang him by hanging and display him as a battle trophy to show that they're winning the War of 1812. So what the scene is, is that Madison is running through the dark, wet forest of Virginia, trying to elude the British, galloping on his horse. But even though he knows that it will be dangerous, he keep, keeps on getting off of his horse to look back at the city of, of Washington disappearing into flame and he knows that this is happening because of the bad mistake that he made which was although he had been a founder he was the one who basically says to americans and to congress let's get involved in the war of 1812 even though it may really not be necessary for our security and yeah maybe you're being a little too harsh on madison because if you view it charitably, he, he arguably was doing some advanced research for future location of Amazon headquarters. But, right, exactly um, <laughs> right. National landing. <laughs> but the one thing I, I enjoy about your book, and it, it, it's a lesson of why you read history. Obviously, there's lessons to be drawn. But, you know, history is sometimes a, a better tale than fiction. And I, I was struck by your description of a British Admiral Cockburn. Um, as he's burning the, in the Capitol, and how he sat in the speaker, the chair of the Speaker of the House, and actually, you know, called the motion: "Shall the har shall this harbor of Yankee democracy be burned? All for it, say I." And it's just such a vivid image, and it's just a reminder of you know, uh, one, you, you did it's the skill of your writing, but also why we read history. Thank you. Well, I think that's right, and uh, as they say in Texas, it has the added advantage of being true. <laughs> Not not everything in life is. In 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 L.A., you know Hollywood did that. that, that right, 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 right. <laughs> Maybe they don't say that in every place in L.A. But um, 
so you have Madison leading us into a war um, that actually could have been avoided. You know, the, the cause of the war um, was was gone by the time it, it started. Yeah, and that's the problem because, you know, for instance, what was the first war that America lost? I would say it was not Vietnam. I would say it was the War of 1812 because the purpose of the war supposedly was the Brits would stop bothering our ships. Well, they decided to stop bothering our ships, but they continued to harass us in other ways. And the other stated purpose of the war was conquer Canada. And I don't know, have you been to Canada lately? I have. It's, uh, uh, my was wife, it still an independent country? My, my wife is Canadian, and she reminds ah, me every, so, every, every time I make fun of Canada, she says, be careful, we'll burn down your White House again. That's exactly <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, some people think that. But the point is that Canada is still independent, as it should be. So we lost the war, if you look at the reasons we fought the war of 1812. And the other thing is that you know, people say the most unpopular war in American history was Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam was not even close to the War of 1812 in terms of Americans not understand why we were fighting it, half of Americans hating it, and half the Congress hating it. And so the sad thing is that we had founders who said, let's only go to, into wars if they're essential for our national security, and if Americans support them, and here's a war that was not supported, wasn't essential, and it happened you know, so soon after the country began. Is this the War of 1812 that you were taught growing up? No, uh, because the War of 1812 I was taught, and I'll bet you you were taught. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Rhode Island. Uh, well, which has some pretty good schools. What I was taught when I was growing up in Illinois public schools was that War of 1812 was a big victory. And, you know, people would say, why? And they would say, well, look, Star-Spangled Banner, the Battle of Fort McHenry, you know, our flag was still there through the night, uh, don't give up the ship and old Ironsides and right. Andrew Jackson's victory in the Battle of New Orleans. So it was, it was basically spun by J James Madison and the people around him to be a great victory, and that's what people thought. And the problem is that it was seen as such a, a great victory that it encouraged later presidents and later Americans to get involved in wars that they should not have done. And one of them was Polk, the next president. Uh, you, you perfect example. On. Absolutely. Uh, James Polk, who became president in the 1840s, who I feel was a liar and a scoundrel and a bully. Aside from that, a lovely person. <laughs> and he became president. He was a slave master. He wanted slavery to spread throughout the United States. And one thing he wanted, which was, you know, these people are not all good or not all bad. He wanted a good thing, which was that America would gain almost a million square miles from Mexico that would make us a continental nation from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Now, if he could have negotiated with that with Mexico and paid them, fine. The problem is he did it in a way that was illicit and illegal. He staged a fake incident on the Mexican border, Mexican border with Texas. Uh, the Mexicans were provoked. The Mexican soldiers attacked in a small way a few American soldiers. And Polk, although he had staged this incident, went to Congress and said, we must have a major war with Mexico and occupy Mexico City. You know, this could last two years because we have to retaliate for this terrible incident. 
Well, as it turns out, his ulterior motive was to get all that land, which he finally got in the end. Land, by the way, which he hoped would be open to slavery. And this was different in character than um, what the founders envisioned. And I think um, Senator Clay, who actually would lose a son in the war, said this was no war of defense but one unnecessary and offensive aggression. And I, the, the, I, don't, I don't believe the founders viewed us as uh, uh, territorial aggressors. That's exactly it. They wanted this to happen only if it was a, a war necessary for our self-defense. They didn't want to be like Europe. So here we are. It's 1840, uh, 1846. Uh, how soon after the writing of the Constitution? Not even 60 years. And here we are behaving like those European dictators. There were very few people in the 1840s who had been alive in 1787, but if they were, they would have been very disappointed and very unhappy. And you you state, uh, there's a quote, um, Paul could crush the founders' hopes that their gleaming new country would not indulge in the old world monarch's habit of manufacturing false pretexts for wars that they sought for other more secret reasons. And then that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So a great quote. Thank you for mentioning it. And so only 60 years after the constitution here, we were behaving just like those European monarchs that we were trying to be different from lying and deceiving Congress. And maybe most of all, a president taking us into a war, you know, almost single-handedly that we probably should not have been in. And in addition, you you also cite Polk for his secrecy. Could you expand uh, that, on that? Yeah, he lied to everyone. He lied to his Secretary of State, you know, saying why was he? Why did he want to go to war? Well, it was to retaliate against the Mexicans. Same thing to key members of Congress. So not only 60 years after the Constitution do you have a president defying the founders in terms of staging a fake incident and getting us involved in a war that's not necessary, but lying to almost every key figure in the drama. Uh, and the problem here also, Bennett, is that, you know, we're Americans, we like winners, and this was a war that we won. And so by the end of 1847, even people who had warned against the war with Mexico were in the minority because Americans said, well, it's a war we won, you know, maybe there were a couple of tricks, but look at all this new land. And and that's a problem, too, because in the future, when you had presidents who were thinking of wars that might not have been necessary, they could know that even though Mexican-American war may have been illicit, that was sort of washed away with many Americans by the fact that we won. But there was one notable figure who uh, it did not wash away with, and he believed that the founders believed that no man should hold the power of bringing this oppression upon us, referring to war. And That, that was said by a young congressman on the floor of the House, you're absolutely right, and elsewhere, and his name was Abraham Lincoln of Illinois. From and your he was home a great state. Man. Right, my home state of Illinois. In fact, uh, can I tell how I was first introduced to Lincoln? Please do. He was, uh, I grew up in northern Illinois, and this happens with a lot of American families, but maybe especially those in Illinois. My parents took me to Springfield when I was about seven years old, and I went into the house where 
Lincoln lived with his family. It's still there. And they showed me the chair that Lincoln sat in when he read to his sons. And, you know, I was seven years old, so I didn't exactly ask what were Lincoln's views on civil liberties. I I asked the guy (laughs) when Lincoln's sons were badly behaved, did he spank them? And as I remember, the guide said with a disgusted look, no, Lincoln didn't believe in discipline. Can you believe he let those brats run wild through this house? And I heard that, and Lincoln was the man for me. I began reading everything I could find on Lincoln, sort of children's books and children's books on presidents that had a lot to do with uh, what I have finally got gone into, writing presidential history. But the point is that Lincoln in 1847 was of the minority to see that even though we won the war and even though we got all this land, which was a good thing, we had gone into an unnecessary war and lied about it and staged a fake incident, which he realized was a bad thing, and he thought it would lead to very bad things in the American future, and he was right. And you speak a great deal about Lincoln. Obviously, the Civil War is a, is a major, you know, the most arguably the most significant war we fought in sure. this country. And um, this was a war of survival. Uh, it was, if you think of Americans, uh, the survival of the United States, meaning the survival of our union. And what Lincoln did from the beginning was he made a lot of mistakes the first, I'd say, year, year and a half, 1861, 1862. And maybe the biggest reason is that Lincoln didn't really level with the public. If you look at what he said, he would say, essentially, this is my language, not his, we're fighting this war against the South. I'm doing it reluctantly because I swore an oath to defend the Constitution. And the Constitution says that states cannot secede, the southern states seceded, so I'm trying to correct that. And he talked about this in the most legalistic, dry language, so that people who were maybe on the fence on whether he should be doing this or not, he was essentially saying, it's my uh, duty to fulfill the law, which it was. But then, sort of like the moment in The Wizard of Oz when it goes from black and white to color, Then finally he realized that wasn't working, and he began saying what was in his heart, and he began sounding like a moral leader. And one of the things in this book is that if you want to know maybe just about the most important quality of a president of war, it's it's that the president be a moral leader, not just be fighting this for balance of power or something more cheap. And so Lincoln basically said, all right, this is not just a war to bring the North and South together, although that's important, this is a war to extinguish the evil of slavery. And once he began saying what was really in his heart, he he was a better speaker. Most of the wonderful quotes that we remember from Lincoln in in the Civil War are when he was talking about slavery. And he was also a more effective commander-in-chief because, you know, it's one thing to get soldiers to die because they're dying to litigate a document like the Constitution that says there should be a union, it's quite another for them to feel that they're dying in a moral crusade. And so by the middle of the Civil War, what Lincoln was saying was, I no longer think that I'll just go down in history as a successful commander-in-chief. I think I will go down in history for moral reasons as the liberator of 100,000 African-Americans. And once he did that, he was a more effective leader in leading his troops and also with Congress and also with Americans. So big lesson to later war presidents, which is 
if you're going to be a president of war in the United States, you have to do it for moral reasons. And one thing you also credit Lincoln for is uh, informing and educating the public about the war and what was at stake and, and how it was being conducted. The exact opposite of Polk. All the way through. You know, Polk lied, never said much of anything, even though so many people were dying. In Lincoln's case, he would tell Americans what was going on, even if it wasn't bad news. And the other thing important about Lincoln was he had empathy. This was someone who, for instance, Richard Nixon once said during the Vietnam War, it is, it is said, he said, I don't want to get too emotionally involved with the soldiers because I'll make bad decisions. It's better for me to look at them as chess pieces. He said, even though at times he'd get very upset over the number of people who were dying, I'd say that's exactly the opposite of what you want. You want is a president who understands the consequences of the terrible decisions he's making. For instance, in Lincoln's case, well under the Civil War, so many people were dying, hundreds of thousands, that Lincoln was told, we need a new national cemetery. There's so many people dying. Where do you want it? And Lincoln said, build it near my summer home in Washington, D.C., because I want to see those Union graves being dug every time I go by it in the evenings and the mornings. And it's going to be intensely painful for me, but I want to be confronted with the fact that these decisions that I'm making are resulting in many people dying. That's what you mean by empathy. You know, when when he talked to a friend of his, for instance, Lincoln said, can you imagine that I, who cannot even stand watching a chicken being slaughtered for a meal, I am making decisions that are responsible for all these young men being killed. I'm responsible for oceans of blood. You want a president who's in touch with that. I'm reminded of a story of some visitors at the White House uh, overhearing um, Lincoln breaking out and you know uproarious laughter from the Oval Office and and admonishing Lincoln, you know, how, how can you do that in these horrible times? And and Lincoln responding something to the effect that, you know, were it not for laughter, I would just be bowled over in grief. That's exactly right. You're a good student of history. That that's exactly <laughs> correct. And and that's true because, you know, Lincoln said what is important is that I be able to function, you know, and at times Lincoln was subject to very grave depression and at times he almost was unable to function. So, you know, he looked for ways to help him. And another way was religion. This is a guy who, when he was a young man in Illinois, was thought to be even an atheist, maybe an agnostic or a skeptic. And then finally, in the middle of the Civil War, he's visited Washington by an old friend of his youth in Illinois who comes by and says, I'm so shocked to see you reading the Bible. And Lincoln said, I don't see how anyone could be through an experience like this, leading the nation through war, who doesn't become more religious. And as I mentioned, that's true of just about every one of these war presidents I've written about. Well, we're going to take a short break so I can get a gold star from my history teacher and from my advertisers. All, all for it. After it. So we'll be right back. You're listening to Simon Law and Business Report, only on Webmaster Radio. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. 
TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs sends you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking with Michael Beschloss, the author of Presidents of War, the epic story from 1807 to modern times. And uh, we covered, we're up through the Civil War, and uh, we're galloping through American history here. And... Um, the next war president is McKinley in the Spanish-American War, and completely different character than the Civil War. This was um, similar to the Mexican-American War in terms of a war that uh, had started on dubious grounds, and and also had you know is the desire to expand the U.S. into an empire. Yeah, you know, remember I was saying about, you know, fake incidents to get us into wars that were not necessary? Here's right. another example, and this is a theme through American history that we've got to worry about today, I think. What happened was that it's pretty famous that we had a ship called the USS Maine, and the Maine was sunk in Havana Harbor. This is 1898. And there was a big furor, you know, how terrible for the Spanish to sink our ship. Uh, McKinley went to Congress and said we need a major war against Spain in retaliation for the sinking of our ship, the Maine. And it turns out that the Maine was not sunk, sunk by Spain. It was sunk by a boiler accident. But I guess, Bennett, you can't go to war against boilers. So you have to go, they had to go to war against Spain. And so as a result, we fought a major war against Spain, uh, for an incident that never happened. The Spanish may have been doing some bad things, but sinking the Maine was not one of them. And it was a war that went for years in subduing the Philippines. We changed the government in Cuba, fortunately, which had been a dictatorial government. We took Guam, we took Puerto Rico. 
but the point is, you know, you can argue whether it was the right thing to wage a war like that, but it was not in retaliation for a real incident. And once again, because we got into a war that turned out to be extremely popular, McKinley loved it. He became much more popular than he had ever been before, but it was fought for reasons that really did not exist. And and we also had the, the issue of mission creep. That's it. Something that originally, would come up again. Yeah, that's it. You know, we didn't call it that in those days. Uh, you and I were not around at the time, but we know this from studying it. But the mission supposedly was retaliating against Spain for this supposed attack, which really didn't take place. And this grew and grew, and this turned into a war to take the Philippines and all these other places. And so this is another thing that happens during wartime, which is there's a temptation for the war to spread. And I, I do recall we, we actually had Stephen Kinzer on, um, and on his latest book, and, and I don't know if it's Terrific. your book or his book, but you know McKinley at one point professed to want to Christianize the the Philippines, which was, was a, a Christian nation. <laughs> right. Yes, he was. He expanded the the mission to you know, trying to change the religion of many Filipinos. And that he did largely at the behest of his, his wife, who was a woman who suffered from a lot of physical maladies, but she was extremely religious. He was devoted to her, and she said to him, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could, you know, expand the reach of Christianity around the world, which may be true, but that's not something that the United States, you know, at least in terms of what he asked from Congress, uh, would have been doing. Now, one president studied closely the Spanish-American War, and uh, it was a, a, f a professor at Princeton University named Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson, and now we get to the Wilson part of our conversation. Uh, is it okay? Do you have any listeners who are Wilson descendants or no. members of the Woodrow Wilson Anti-Defamation League? No, quite okay not at all. By, Please yeah, do. Wilson. We actually just did a segment um, recently on the centennial of the of World War One, and uh, right, which just so. passed. I'm not a big fan of Woodrow Wilson. I'm a fan of his progressive reforms, uh, first term. And I'm a fan of his idealism, and I'm glad that he saw the United States as a positive force in the world, which it should always be, always trying to you know, carry the torch for democracy, but a pretty bad war president, uh, beginning with uh, in 1916 when he was running for re-election, he ran on a slogan called, he kept us out of war. Problem with that is that privately, he knew it was very likely that he would take us into a war if he was reelected, which he did. And the sad thing is that Wilson won re-election, very close election in 1916, basically with the help of women voters in California who could vote in 1916. And they voted for Wilson because they thought that he would keep us out of war, which he did not. So I think it's a bad thing when a president deceives the people, which Wilson did. Do you think he could have kept us out of war? Given... Uh, at that point, at that point, probably not. But he should not have been running under a slogan that he knew was essentially a lie. Especially someone who, as you're suggesting, had spent decades writing history, talking about how important honesty is to our democracy. That's interesting. And the one thing that was striking about Wilson was 
how he um, centralized power once, once the war was launched. That's it. Creating... This is a guy who was, you know, had spent all these years writing about how wonderful democracy is and almost tried to become a dictator in certain ways. And actually that was written in those terms at the time. For instance, uh, got Congress to pass something called, you know, the Espionage Act. Yes. Uh, Espionage Act. This gets into issues that you deal with. Espionage Act allows a president to go after journalists who write things that criticize a president, especially in wartime. It's still in force. You would think that someone who posed as a great civil libertarian like Woodrow Wilson would have been against something called the Espionage Act. And he also created a propaganda bureau. Uh, propaganda Bureau and his Justice Department went after very many people who criticized him. And the problem here, Bennett, is that from my point of view, and I'll bet you don't disagree, you know, Benjamin Franklin once said, in American society, our critic is our friend. Another way we were trying to be different from England, because in England, you couldn't criticize the king, it was illegal. The founders said, criticize presidents because it'll make them better leaders. Right. And so for Wilson to try to quash criticism of his behavior as a war president, that was anti-democracy. And it was so hypocritical because Wilson had made his reputation as an academic writing about how great democracy was. And I heard an interview you gave where you talked about Wilson and particularly his approach to the the peace negotiations in Paris, mm-hmm. and it, you you called it the uh, the first Ionism, you know, right. referring uh, to Trump's convention. There was a president speech. we heard a couple of years ago at the convention saying I alone can fix it. Yes. And 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 Woodrow Wilson. It's it's sort of funny, Bennett. I had a Wilson scholar read my Wilson chapters and I asked him to suggest changes and this this is a guy who really likes Wilson you know we just disagree and he said in the margin would you at least consider deleting the words conceited and messianic <laughs> so you, you you can see which way I was going but this is the thing with Wilson he was so completely full of himself that when the war was won exactly as you say a hundred years ago this week uh, there's going to be a peace conference in Paris Wilson wanted a League of Nations, you know, the early version of the United Nations, to make sure that we never got into a war like this ever again. And so if he had been a competent president, he would have said, I'll stay in America so that I can be at the forefront of the debate with Congress to make sure that Congress will admit the United States to the League of Nations. Instead, he was so conceited and he was so messianic and he felt that he was so indispensable that he said, despite the precedence to the contrary of all of American history, I've got to go to the peace negotiations myself. I can't send a diplomat. He'll never be as good as me. So the result was that Wilson is out of the country for months. He leaves the debate over the League of Nations to people who hated it, like Senator Henry Cabot Lodge. And by the time he got back to the U.S. the following summer, Basically, it was fixed, and Americans were against the League, and there was almost nothing he could do to change their minds. And as a result, with America outside the League of Nations, it never really worked. could have prevented the rise of Hitler. It could have prevented World War II. And worst of all, in the late 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt was trying to tell Americans, we may have to go to war to stop Adolf Hitler and the Imperial Japanese. 
and probably a majority of them said, we detest Woodrow Wilson, World War I was a failure, we lost 116,000 Americans, it never achieved what we wanted it to, and therefore we are totally against getting into another war. And that feeling was so strong, it almost kept us out, almost kept Roosevelt from rearming. Had that happened, we could have lived in a world dominated by Hitler. That's true. That's what was at stake. There is one other thing I, I fault Wilson for, and in, in, I have a great uncle who was killed in the, in World War One, and so I've you know been paying a lot of attention to the um, the centennial celebrations. Yes. I have and, a great uncle who served as well, although uh, fortunately he survived. Glad to hear that. Um, I'm sorry about yours. I am, and the, the sad part is, is the notice that he died came. He was killed in the Meuse-Argonne offensive, and the notice that he died came after the armistice. So, you know, the family had their hopes dashed. But um, the one of the more heroic stories of World War One is the the Harlem Hellfighters. You know, an all-black unit that just you know performed in outstanding ways yep. and um, is really you know have have many honors from the, the French government. And um, there, when they returned home, um, they they were they weren't recognized, and some of them you know couldn't couldn't get Purple Hearts. And one of them in particular just struck me. Is his, I forget his his name at the moment, but um, it was Johnston, I believe. And uh, he had um, spent nine months after the war recuperating from injuries in uh, France. And then when he returned home, there was a, a series of riots happening in the South, of uh, you know kind of Jim Crow attacking uh, veterans who had arms, and uh, and. Rose, excuse me, Wilson refused to intervene. He refused to send troops to support um, or defend the veterans or to quell the um, situation. And and this he was a one, horrible race, racist. Yeah, virulent. And this one hero he got off the train in Arkansas to amidst a riot and was taken off the train and killed. Yep. And it, it's just a horrible thing. And I know one historian said that. Had Wilson stood up then and said they fought for democracy abroad, right. it's right. time we consider giving it to them here. And the um, problem was he was one of the worst racists in the history of the presidency. Right, which isn't taught in school, going back to our nope. earlier discussion about 1812. No, I think we're both annotating our, our um, eighth grade history books. Right, but, <laughs> right. We'll have to go back to our teachers. <laughs> but uh, any event, it's it, it's just it's a very disappointing chapter in our history in that respect. But you go to FDR, and I, I, there are two presidents who really jump out um, as you know, meeting, you know, getting a, a gold star from you. One would be Lincoln, and to a certain extent, Roosevelt's another one. Uh, Roosevelt with uh, with criticisms, yeah, yeah, I agree on Roosevelt. I mean, let me say the downside here. Number one, I think he could have done a lot more to thwart the Holocaust, which I go into some detail. That even by 1944, he had known that that the Jewish people were in huge jeopardy and they were dying and they were in concentration camps. He could have done more. And the other thing, the Japanese Americans whom he sent to concentration camps that were uh, to isolate them during World War II. They were interned. And there's an interesting story, which is in 1942, his wife Eleanor told him, you know, this is not necessary to intern the Japanese. 
it, uh, you should not do this, and he did it anyway, and their marriage was never the same again. So two, in my mind, large blots on Roosevelt as a war president. That having been said, the man was shrewd. He waged World War II in terms of, remember what I was saying about moral leadership, the four mm-hmm. freedoms in Roosevelt's case? Almost every week at certain points, he would go on the radio and tell Americans, you know, there may be some setbacks, this is what we're trying to do. He had been Woodrow Wilson's assistant secretary of the Navy, and having seen so many of Wilson's mistakes, he was able to be a much more effective war president. You know, I think we can thank him largely for the fact that the the Allies, it's not the only reason, but because of Roosevelt's leadership, the Allies were able to win World War II, and it was a lot closer than people remember. And in, in jumping, tying him to your last war president, I often think it's unfortunate Roosevelt died when he did. Because um, one thing that struck me about Roosevelt in, in his view of what the post-war um, order should be was that he was, and, and especially as an Irishman I appreciate, was he was fiercely anti-colonialist. Yes. And, and uh, he really did not want to hand over nations back to their colonial powers. Um, he really he wanted an orderly process for their independence. And, Absolutely. And, and Truman backtracked on that at the assistance of de Gaulle um, in order to you know, get um, as a kind of trading uh, horse trading for his his priorities in Europe. And and that led to, ultimately, us being involved in Vietnam. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. And as good as Truman was, and one reason we praised Truman for the way that he closed down World War II was that this was an inexperienced senator from Missouri. Uh, I, I would find very few people who would say that this would not have happened better with FDR, except for the fact that by the spring of 1945, Roosevelt had been heroically struggling privately, because this was kept a secret, with advanced cardiovascular disease. And by April of 45, when he died, he was not what he was before. He was, you know, he would sign a document, and it's it's really sad. 30 seconds later, would not remember having signed it. So if you could have had a healthy FDR in 1945, absolutely. And I agree with that. But I also think Truman does not get enough credit, particularly for the Cold War. I often say, tell people, you know, neither JFK nor Reagan would have had their dramatic speeches at Berlin were it not for Truman's leadership, both with the Marshall Plan and the Berlin Air. Totally agree. You know, it's an example. Truman, when he left the presidency, 1953, remember we were talking earlier about why I think you need hindsight to write history? When he left the presidency, his Gallup approval rating was about 23%. And that's because, you know, you didn't see the outcome of the great decisions he made. Here we are, what, 66 years later, 65 years later. Most historians see Truman as a great president because, at least in part, we now know that Truman's decisions on the Cold War worked and America prevailed. And so that's why you sometimes need... 40 or 50 years to be able to see whether these were really great leaders or not. Now, uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Johnson and the Powell Doctrine. 
after these messages. You're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Celebrating the best in online advertising, the Web Marketing Association presents the 2018 Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Submit your banner ads, email ads, rich media, online newsletters, websites, and social media campaigns now by going to www.iacaward.org. Deadline for entries is January 31st, 2019. All winners will have their entry highlighted on the Internet Advertising Competition website, as well as receive a handsome trophy to display or a personalized certificate of achievement. Be honored among your online advertising peers by submitting your entry into the Web Marketing Association's 2018 Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Go to www.iacaward.org now. There are over 70 million active podcast listeners in the U.S. WebmasterRadio.fm reaches them all with the largest global distribution of any online business-to-business podcast network. We can target and place your message in front of those active listeners immediately. Now, your message can be delivered with less commitment and investment on over 20 hours of weekly original content hosted by the most respected names in digital marketing. Thanks to an exclusive private offer available for a very limited number of companies. But you must act fast. Email brasco at wmr.fm and get your message delivered now. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back and we're talking with Michael, Michael Beschloss. He's the author of Presidents of War, and he'll be at the Miami Book Fair on November 18th. Um, we'll have details in our show notes. And um, so we, we, we're kind of close to wrapping up, and we, we come to Vietnam. But one theme in reading your your discussions of all the various presidents at war is in some ways it makes me wonder to what degree you subscribe to the Powell doctrine you know that the 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 doctrine that uh, ascribed to Colin Powell as to when America should go to war and how it should go to war because you know there's certain principles that you highlight you know it has to be a vital interest you know the public has to be aware of it the public has to be behind the uh, behind it and the consequences have to be considered. Is, it, is that a fair guide? Uh, I believe that's true. And uh, if the public is not behind it at the beginning, the president better very quickly convince Americans that this is something that we should do. And maybe the best example that shows you how important that is is Vietnam, just as you're saying, Bennett. Right. 1964. Uh, there is a 
dust-up in the Gulf of Tonkin. Johnson, who was president for almost a year, gets a report that there was an incident in the Gulf of Tonkin. He goes to Congress and says there was an unprovoked attack. I need a resolution saying, you know, use armed force in Southeast Asia. And Johnson and Nixon, for the next almost a decade, waged the Vietnam War based on that resolution passed almost unanimously. We now know that Johnson pretty soon was told that there had never been any such incident in the Gulf of Tonkin, and it probably wasn't unprovoked. And so you've got this horrible spectacle. You remember I was talking about these fake incidents? Right. Once again, a president waging a major war that in this case killed almost 60,000 Americans based on an incident that never happened. And one thing even worse, you know, I've, I've studied very carefully, you know, these tapes that LBJ made of his private conversations, and he made about almost 700 hours of them. And one of them is in early 1965, when Johnson is sending off these idealistic young Americans to die in Vietnam and telling them we're going to win this war. In private, at just the same time, he's saying on the telephone, and it's on the tape, I can't think of anything worse than losing the war in Vietnam, and I do not see any way that I can, that we can win. Beginning of 65. And I admire Johnson in a lot of ways, but I can't think of something worse that a president can do than to send young Americans off to die in a war claiming that he thinks we're going to win, while in private saying, I don't see any way of victory. Uh, I just don't see how Johnson, who had a big heart, could have done that. And you do credit Johnson, however, for, uh, this This came out in, in this book, um, avoiding a potential nuclear war in Vietnam. Right, and that's Johnson's good de- deed. In uh, the early 1968, Johnson's commander in Vietnam, William Westmoreland, it turns out, and I was able to bring the final pieces to the puzzle and figure this out. Westmoreland says to Johnson, you know, we're stalemated in Vietnam, we're facing defeat, why don't we use nuclear weapons to make sure that we win? And Johnson says, absolutely not, you know, it'll bring in the Russians and the Chinese, you could have 100 million human beings killed as a result of this and lock up those documents because I don't want them leaked to put pressure on me to do this. And if there's ever a case, Bennett, that you need to ask the question, doesn't matter if you have a president with wisdom and judgment and experience, here's an example, because someone less than Johnson would have said, well, leave it to the generals, you know, Westmoreland is pretty smart if he needs nuclear weapons, give them to him, and we could have lost 100 million human beings And what was at stake? A civil war in the agricultural country of Vietnam that was not necessary to win the Cold War. That was a moment in which Johnson was brilliant and necessary. And you have um, already done two volumes based on your tapes, review of the tapes for Johnson, and have a third volume coming, I understand? Uh, Right, Uh, in in the future. And one problem with listening to so many of those is that it's it's not great for my clean language because you listen to Johnson, you know, and everything is, I mean, I'll clean this up for your audience. You know, that guy is so stupid, he can't find his rear end with both hands and a lot of things worse than that. So uh, 
if it's not a great thing if you were expecting to speak a little bit more elegantly than Lyndon Johnson does because you listen to this so much and you could begin to start talking uh, like him pretty fast. So it would be, be sure to if it catch you at a bar when I bring up Johnson. Right, exactly. But, uh, Thank well, you. I, I recently, no, I shouldn't say recently, it has been a few years, uh, I, atten- I went to Lyndon Johnson's library. And oh, uh, as, as I mentioned, I grew up in New England. Yes, um, indeed. Irish Irish Catholic family, so obviously right. you know the Kennedys were part of the Holy Trinity, and and, um, and I've been to the Kennedy Library a number of times. It's you know this huge right. IMP structure, and Johnson's yep. Library actually predates Kennedy's. You know, right. it was it was built while he was. Still and Johnson alive. loved the fact that his library was about four times the size of Kennedy's. Actually, it's much smaller. Uh, no, Johnson's Library as a physical mass is larger. Okay, the museum part's pretty. I thought was pretty small. No, the but, museum is is small, but the building is larger. Okay, that's fair. maybe not, may, maybe not quite four times, but it looks like four times. Well, but what struck me was, you know, one that it was smaller, but also what struck me was it got to the gift shop, and the Kennedy Library, the gift shop is just full of you know volumes of you know all sorts of things on everything Kennedy, you know, for his thousand days. And Johnson, who had this amazingly consequential presidency, uh, the only volume there was Doris Kearns Goodwin book, you know, uh, other than a kid's book. And and it it just dawned on me to the extent that a lot of people served in both the, the Kennedy and Johnson administration. But they always refer to themselves as part of the Kennedy administration. They, you know, there was this the kind of the abandonment of the Johnson legacy, and largely because of Vietnam. And it's a somewhat unfortunate because of his social legacy. Legacy is so important, and you know, there aren't there aren't people carrying the flag the, the same way they do for Kennedy. I think it's getting a little bit better. That uh, I mean, for instance, I graduated from college in the late 1970s, and LBJ was detested at the time. And people did not think of him in terms of civil rights and Medicare and the other things. And, you know, it's sort of like what I was saying earlier, that you need 30 or 40 years to write about these people as history. Another thing that happens is that with with the passage of time, it's it's easier to see these people whole. I think Johnson will always be you know, castigated for what he did in Vietnam, and I think he deserves to be for many of those big decisions. But in the same breath, you have to also say this was a fascinating man, and he was also responsible for civil rights and voting rights. So, if your books take uh, have a gestation of eleven years, and you know, so this one was Presidents of War, you're looking forward eleven years. Will your next book be Presidents and Reign? Uh, <laughs> Thinking of President Trump in Paris, I assume you mean. Exactly. Uh, I do think that presidents should honor the sacrifice of our soldiers, and we lost a lot of them in in World War One. I. I wish that had not happened. I, I obviously I've seen you a lot on MSNBC and elsewhere, and are you is your dance card more full because of the Trump administration and the unprecedented nature of what is occurring? Well, I think one thing is that, you know, historians, we try to sort of deal with past presidents, not always through the lens of the present. But I think much of what Donald Trump is trying to do in terms of expanding presidential power and even changing elements of our democracy, I think that's when historians are really needed to remind people of the way that they have, the way that things have been during 200 years. 
And are you an optimist on this? I'm always an optimist because anyone who believes in our system as deeply as I do feels that our system is so strong, it's so regenerative, it overcomes so many problems, anyone who bets against it is absolutely crazy, but it requires all of us to be active. We've got to sleep with one eye open. We've got to vote. You know, the problems are when you have an election in which people do not vote. That's when the democracy does not work. And when a president does bad things, everyone has to protest. I believe that protest is the highest form of patriotism. Founders felt the same way. But if you have Americans being quiescent, or let's say at a time that we're in a war, if a president says, you criticize the war, you're criticizing the soldiers, that's against democracy. We can't accept that. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. His book is Presidents of War, Michael Beschloss. He'll be at Miami Book Fair on the 18th, and you can follow him on Twitter at BeschlossDC. Um, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Same for me, Bennett. And that's all for this week. Join us again on another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. Check us out on Twitter at Cyber Law Radio. And until next week, this is Ben and Kelly. Have a great week. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.